So we are continuing our series, Kiss the Sun, and we are nearing the end of that series as we've looked at the first 25 psalms. And this psalm, Psalm 20, forms a pair with next week's psalm, Psalm 21, which Nate will be speaking on. Um, And this psalm is a royal psalm. So that means that this really pertains to the king, it pertains to David. And this one kind of forms a prayer. Next week's psalm, Psalm 21, is more of like a song of praise um, as the prayer of Psalm 20 has been resolved. And uh, this, this psalm that we're looking at today would have been used in worship in preparation for battle throughout Israel's history. David is the author of this psalm. And it's written in a format where the first half of the psalm is sung by the congregation of Israel. And then David has a response to that, that plea uh, for help, that prayer. And then it concludes with a verse at the very end there where they sing out in unison. As we look at this psalm, I really aim to show, as we've done throughout this series, that in this psalm, Christ is anticipated throughout this short psalm. So yes, it is directly written about David, and it's written by David, uh, but it is full of truth and theology that finds its ultimate culmination in Christ, the truer king. So let's read Psalm 20. And it's a pretty short psalm here. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of your, in the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So this morning we're going to look at at three things. A prayer for help, a response of assurance, and thirdly, a savior king. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask, Lord, that as we try to unpack it this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that you would fill our hearts with more knowledge of your grace and more knowledge of you, Lord, that we would be edified and built up, and that we would go forward from here rejoicing in you, the God of our salvation. Lord, fill our hearts with joy this morning over all that you've done, and in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. So we begin with a prayer for help. We'll read just uh, the first five verses again. These verses, as I mentioned earlier, are the voice of the congregation of Israel. Uh, They're speaking to the king, but really it's a prayer for help for the king. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. 
So historically, this psalm would have been sung by the people to their king before heading into battle. The people would sing of their desire for the Lord to intervene on the king's behalf and to offer divine help and protection. And we don't know the exact setting of the writing of this psalm. We don't know which battle it was written before. We don't know uh, what was going on in Israel's um, existence and David's life when he wrote this psalm. But we do know that this psalm would have been sung uh, not just in the time that it was written, but for years to come before Israel would head into battle. And it was a song of, of prayer. It was a song of, of pleading for help that the Lord would remember his anointed. We're going to unpack here some of the original purpose behind the psalm. And we see in this passage that the people here are appealing to the name of the God of Jacob for protection and help. And this is referencing the covenantal name of God that Yahweh revealed uh, of himself to Moses in Exodus uh, chapter 3. So we're going to read that very briefly here, Exodus three thirteen through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now we're going to come back to the importance of the name of the Lord later uh, when we get a little bit further into the text. But what we see here and throughout Psalm 20 is that the psalmist, David, and the people find their security in the name of the Lord. The God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By remembering this name, they are remembering the covenant faithfulness of God to all of Israel. As they remember all that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and, and all of Israel went through. They remember how God was faithful to himself. How God was faithful to his people on the basis of his own namesake. So they're looking to this covenant faithful God. This prayer is a reminder to themselves not to look to the outside troubles. But to look to the faithful God who has delivered them time and time again. Now, in verse 2, the people pray for help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. So while these other nations that they were at war with uh, relied on their strength and their military uh, for help and support, the people of Israel relied on the Lord, from whom his sanctuary in Zion, or Jerusalem, would go with them. And this was pictured by the Ark of the Covenant going before them into battle. The sanctuary, or the tabernacle, where the Ark was housed, was the place where God himself especially made himself present for his people. In verse 3, we see the people desire that God would remember the king's offerings and look favorably upon his sacrifices. The offerings and sacrifices were the means the worshiper uh, received assurance of God's love and devoted himself to God. Sorry, this music stand keeps like slipping on me here. <laughs> I have to get a new one. Okay, sorry about that. So as we dig into this, we're going to look more at what these types and shadows of the sanctuary really are pointing us to. Um, and spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Verse 4 and 5 seem to anticipate 
that God would give them the help that they needed, the help that they were requesting, the help that they were pleading for, and that there would be a loud shout to come, that there would be a victory celebration, a bigger victory celebration than Mike had after last week's Super Bowl. (laughs) Their prayer for help would be met with a response of assurance as David uh, addresses the congregation of Israel here in verses 6 through 8. And so we're going to read that. We'll actually read through verse 9 here as well. But David's response really comes in verses 6 through 8. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And this last verse, verse 9, would have been uh, the congregation joining with David. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So we see David's response. He sings to the people of his calm assurance of the salvation of the Lord. How does David have this assurance? Because at times, as we've looked through this series, we've seen that David has given in to fear. Uh, If we remember back to Psalm 10, I kind of likened it to David looking at the bad guy uh, in in the front windshield, and he sees God in the rearview mirror, but as he keeps moving forward, it's like God just kind of keeps getting smaller in the distance as he keeps driving towards the big bad guy. So David has given in to this fear before. He's, he's seen the giants before him, uh, both figuratively and legitimately with Goliath. Um, and he's, he's given in to fear at times. At times he's felt the ground give way, as we saw uh, him reference in Psalm 18. It's like the cords of death entangled him. So he's felt fear. So what is it in these verses that David is able to point to, that he's able to come back to, uh, to give him hope? Why does he have assurance here in Psalm 20, where in other places it seems that he kind of lacks that assurance? Well, David, as he often does, looks back to the promises of God for his reason for hope. And that's what he's doing here. He's remembering the covenant that God has made with him. The key to this is that he says that that. I think it's in verse 6 here. The Lord saves his anointed. And he's not just saying that boastfully of himself. You know, I'm the anointed king and God's going to rescue me because I'm the anointed king. He's actually looking towards the promised Messiah when he says that. In in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're not going to turn there, but uh, God made a covenant with David. And it's an unconditional covenant, meaning there's no conditions. David did not need to meet any conditions in order for God to bring about the promise that he made. And God is faithful to his covenant. He promises there that David's son Solomon would build a house for God, the temple. It was David's desire to build this temple. And God spoke to him and said, it will be your son who builds the temple, who will build me this house. But more than his son Solomon, there was coming another son of David whose kingdom would last forever. An everlasting kingdom. So David has this promise to rest on. So when he says that God will save his anointed, he knows that God is preserving his line because there's coming a Messiah, an anointed one, who will save his people from their sins. 
David knows that God will save his anointed, that from his holy heaven, God will answer, and he would respond to the prayers of his people. He would not go back on his covenant. And this covenant was based on the faithfulness of God's very name. And by trusting in chariots and horses, Israel's opponents were relying on the most advanced military technology of their day. Perhaps a modern rendering would say some trust in rifles and some in missiles. Some trust in jets and some in bombs. Uh, Some trust in nuclear power. David, by looking deeper than these surface realities, is showing us a, a deeper meaning of trust. He is looking to God's good governance over all things. So even though the enemy has all this military technology and in that time, chariots were a big deal. They were, they were pretty intimidating. They were scary things. Uh, they would often have blades on the wheels, and they would just mow down people as the chariots rolled through. It's pretty scary. David is looking beyond all of this. Now, war is a complicated topic, and so what I'm saying this morning is not some kind of blanket statement. But I will say that it was not wrong for David to use the various means of battle that he had available to him. But David was also not looking to those things for his ultimate protection. David was not trusting in horses and chariots, though at times he used them. David is looking to the one who is sovereign over all of these things. He is looking to the God who in his good plans... And in his providence, will come to the rescue and save his anointed. David here is also calling his people to not look to himself for rescue. Often people look to their king for rescue. They look to their king for salvation. Excuse me. The nation surrounding Israel uh, would often worship and venerate their king and look to him for, for all sorts of protection and guidance. David is telling the people of Israel, look to the Lord for protection. Don't look to me. Look to God. David was a good king, but he was also merely a man. David and Israel would find their only hope in the name of their God, Yahweh. Those who trust in him will not collapse and fall, but will stand, trusting in the name of God. And trusting in the name of God is a dominant theme of this psalm. We read earlier from Exodus 3, where God revealed his name in the burning bush. The name he revealed to Moses, we uh, pronounce as Yahweh. Uh, In the English, in our Bibles, this is often rendered as Lord with all capital letters. And it is the covenant name of God. And I think throughout this series, we've talked often about what that name means. And uh, the, the literal meaning is, I am what I am. The name speaks of the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. God is the one on whom all of life depends for its very existence, whether they recognize it or not. He is dependent on no one. And this is his covenant name, the name that David calls Israel to depend on. And David knows that God will not fail any promises that he's made upon his own name. He is faithful. And so we, too, can rest on that name. We can trust that name. In his name, there is victory. Upon his name, we can build 
our lives. He is faithful. We can trust God with our hopes. We can trust God with our future. We don't have to look to chariots and horses. We can trust in the name of the Lord. The machines of war, the strength of nations, the wisdom of man, they all fail. But the name of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, we can trust in him. In verse 9, the people join the king and they, say, they sing together, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So this psalm ends where it begins, with the people calling out for God to save their king. The people of Israel, they bow to the sovereignty of God, looking to him alone for victory. So we've looked at a prayer for help. We've looked at David's response of assurance. And I want to show us this morning how this psalm shows us a savior king. So all of this, all that we've looked at, all the encouraging, um, wonderful truths that we've seen really are, you know, it's enough. You can walk away from here today and, and say, I've been encouraged in the Lord. I've been reminded to trust in his name. These are all wonderful things. But as we've been going through it, I hope that as you've seen the scripture, I I hope that your mind has kind of raced ahead a little bit. I don't don't normally, you know, say that to people like, oh, I hope you weren't paying attention to what I was saying. You know, but I hope your mind has kind of raced ahead a little bit as we've looked at this. And I hope what you're seeing is that ultimately the scripture that we're reading finds its truer answer in Christ. All of these petitions of Israel have really been supercharged with anticipation Of the final anointed one. The one in whom these petitions can only find their true answer. The one that David was looking for. Jesus Christ. He is the Savior King. And so with that in mind, let's read through these verses one more time. Starting in verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. We'll stop there. This psalm is pointing us to Christ. He is the one who faced trouble so that in him we might be protected. Not in the temporal sense. He's, he's not freeing us from all troubles that we will face, because certainly we will all face troubles at times. But in the eternal sense, he faced judgment and wrath, so that we would be protected in him. Help came to him from God's sanctuary, so that Christ was empowered through all of his life, as he depended on the Father and the Holy Spirit. All through his life, death, and resurrection, he had the help of the Lord. And then he was exalted upon, above all other names. The sanctuary itself points us to Christ as both the tabernacle and later the temple typify Christ. And it's from him that our help comes from. Christ's work on the cross was the greatest sacrifice the sacrifice that all other sacrifices and offerings were pointing to. They were types and shadows pointing to this ultimate sacrifice. And his sacrifice was accepted. 
And through this, favor has been given to all sinners who have believed. In this context, when we see the word Selah, it comes to us as a reminder to rest. Selah is a musical direction. Um, I've, I've talked about it as kind of a, a moment to pause and think, to take a breath. Well, what I want us to see in this is that this musical direction for rest is a reminder for us to find our rest in the sacrifice of Christ. Stop, take a breath, and remember what Christ did on the cross. To find our rest, our ceasing from working in what Jesus has done. Excuse me a moment. I have found that in the last uh, week I get parched a little bit easier. Christ's desire and his plans were set on the salvation of his bride. And he has accomplished all that he planned. Because of this, we can rejoice. We can receive the salvation that he has won. We can find our joy in his salvation. And we can raise our banners. Now, we don't have any banners in here. um, But if you grew up in the church in the 80s or 90s, it's likely that you would have seen banners lining the walls. Um, In the church I grew up in, we had a few. And uh, they, they were sometimes interesting. But what this is referencing in the text is that when nations went to war, they carried their national emblems, their national seals, their their flag, if you will, um, and they would carry them into war, their national banner. We carry high the banner of the cross. Jesus has won the victory, and so the flag that we carry, the flag that we lift high is the flag of victory. And so you can rejoice in that victory. He has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished in your salvation. And so you can lift high the banner of Jesus Christ. David's response, which we have looked at from uh, the perspective of history and what David intended, also has direct implications for us as it continues to point us to Christ as well. And verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. As we look at these verses, let's consider Christ. Yahweh anointed Christ to be a prince and savior and our shield. And his cries were heard by the Father. And we know that because of that, our cries will be heard as well. For Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He hears from heaven with saving strength in his right hand. In Romans 8.34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Charles Spurgeon writes, Since Jesus was heard, we shall be. God is in heaven, but our prayers can scale those glorious heights. 
Those heavens are holy, but Jesus purifies our prayers, and so they gain admittance. Our need is great, but the divine arm is strong, and all its strength is saving strength. We also see this in Hebrews 4, in verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All that we need, we can come to Christ and he has it available for us. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. Jesus, the Savior King, he is mighty to save and he hears from heaven. He is also the name that we can trust above all means that this world can afford. We can trust in the name of the Lord. Jesus himself identified with the covenant name of Yahweh. In John eight fifty eight through 59, it reads, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus calls himself the I am, claiming the covenant name of God for himself. And this stirred a violent reaction as the religious leaders picked up stones to throw at him. They were holding a trial right then and there. Paul tells us that Jesus has received the name that is above all other names. In Philippians 2, 9, he writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we may ourselves never have trusted in chariots and horses. Maybe we've never trusted in jets and missiles. Yet I'm sure that there are things in all of our lives that we have trusted in that we've looked to for security and help. Money, employment, health, relationships, and many other things, which are all good things. But we can often find ourselves trusting in them rather than in the name of the Lord. And so this psalm serves as a reminder for us not to put our trust in those things, even good things, such as Bible reading and and, um, our, our time of prayer, as our means of security for our future. Talking about some of these earthly things, you know, it's, it's one thing to use money. It's one thing to have a job. It's one thing to do all these good things. But it's another thing to trust in those as ultimate. It's one thing to labor and provide for your family, which is a good thing. But it's another thing to trust in your job or, or your ability to provide as the means of supply for your family. So it's a good thing to work. It's a good thing to be able to pay our bills and and put food on the table. It's a good thing to come home at the end of the day and feel a little bit tired from the day's labor. It's good to set aside money as you're able to for the unknown future. Um, I haven't always done well with that. Husbands and fathers, you know, it's, it's good to labor and provide. But let's remember... Who is our source and our provision? Let's look to the Lord for those things. Certainly we work. Certainly we we try to provide these things for our family. But let's trust in the name of the Lord as our provision. 
We don't know what tomorrow may hold, but he does. It's not good for us to trust in any of these things. So let us work and use the money all the while trusting and resting in the name of the Lord, trusting in the sovereignty of God. When it comes to our walk with the Lord, let us not look to our own devices and our own abilities, our own means, as if somehow all the good things that we do earns us anything with the Lord. Let's trust in Christ. He is the beginning and the end of our salvation, our justification, our sanctification. It's all his work. And he provides it freely as we believe in him. All of these other things that we look to are just sinking sand. Edward Mote wrote these familiar words sometime around 1834. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Don't look to the things of this world that may seem secure. They may seem strong. Because they're not. Don't look to your own abilities. Don't look to your own strengths for safety. It's Christ alone. He is our solid rock. He is our security. He is our safety. He is our salvation. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's been made all these things for us. And so I only have two simple points of application here. And that is, number one, to trust in the name of the Lord. Trust in Christ. Look not to the things around us, but look to the one who is faithful and true. We can trust our Savior King, the solid rock. And number two, flee to the cross for sanctuary. Whereas those of the world will think it foolish to flee to Christ for safety, for us it is a comfort. In all times of need, in Christ there is help. This morning we come to partake of the Lord's table. And in doing this, we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord. It is a physical remembrance of all that Jesus has done. And we show that our trust is in Christ. By partaking in this, we are showing that our trust is in the name of the Lord. The name above every other name. Let's read from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As Nate and the worship team uh, come to lead us in song, um, you can make your way either to the table in the back or the table at the front here. Um, there's the cups with the juice and the wafer all sealed in one. There's the wafers that are uh, gluten-free if that serves you.
And uh, with the Lord's table, you know, as the scripture shows us, it is for believers. And so we ask that if you're not a believer, um, that you that you not participate. Though if you've believed the good news of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, your sins are forgiven. And so I do invite you to the table. If something has, has struck your heart during this message and you've believed in this good news, I would be glad to pray with you. I would be glad to celebrate the Lord's death with you this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, let this cup of blessing which we bless be the communion of the blood of Christ. Let this bread which we break be the communion of the body of Christ. And enable us herein to show the Lord's death till he come. Let the cross of Christ, which is to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, be to us the wisdom of God and the power of God. Give us grace as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so to walk in him. We thank you for the word of Christ. We receive with glad hearts the gospel this morning and ask that it would bear fruit in our lives in accordance with your word. Let us not look to earthly means, but rather look to Jesus, trusting in the name of the Lord. Thank you for the grace that we have felt this morning. As your word in the Song of Solomon says, we have sat down under your shadow with delight, and your fruit has been sweet to our taste. You have brought us to the banqueting house, and your banner over us has been love. In Jesus' name, the name above every name, Amen.